your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, please, to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. Grateful for the number of skilled musicians in our congregation who are willing to use their talents to uh, lead us, even adding a ukulele. Ukulele. I'm going to bring my jug next week and play along. It's going to be great. Uh, Acts 14, uh, we're going to look in a few minutes at verses 21 through 28 uh, is where we're going to turn eventually, but I'd like you to have your Bibles open if you would please uh, with me this morning. Uh, There is a certain phase of life that every child goes through and parents know about it and sometimes it's a subject of uh, great moaning and groaning. It's the why phase of childhood. Um, this is the moment when whenever you do anything or ask your child to do anything, the response is always, why? You say, it's time for a bath. They say, why? You're dirty. Why? Because you were at the playground. Why? Because the playground is a fun place to visit and play. Why? Because of the slides and monkey bars and swing sets. Why? Because I told you so. <laughs> how all those conversations eventually end, right? Uh, Contrary to what you expect, experts say that actually children who are in the why phase of life ask those questions not to annoy you. The stage at which they try to annoy you purposely comes a little bit later. But uh, this stage, they're actually, what they're trying to do is, is, is have you respond. They're trying to engage with you. That's one of the things they're trying to do. The why question can't be answered simply or easily. It shouldn't be answered because I told you so most often. The other reason that they ask these questions is because they're trying to figure things out. They're trying to put the pieces of life together. They really do want to know why. Some business experts say you should ask why a lot, especially when you assume a new role, perhaps of leadership. In fact, one says that you need to ask at least a why at least five times for every issue that you uh, come across. Uh, I'm not sure if you realize it, but the book of Acts was written uh, in part to answer the why question. Do you remember Theophilus? Theophilus is the name of the man, or maybe it's his nickname, probably it's his nickname. Theophilus is the name, though, of the man to whom the book of Acts was written. He's mentioned in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. He's the primary audience and the most important reader of the book of Acts. And we know from from the Gospel of Luke, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts, these two-volume set of books in the New Testament for Theophilus. And the reason that he wrote them for Theophilus is because Theophilus was a new follower of Jesus, but he had some questions, some what questions, some how questions some when and where questions, and some why questions. In fact, Luke wrote to Theophilus and he said, I'm writing this to you so that you can know the certainty of the things that you have heard. I want you to know more clearly what it means to be a follower of Jesus and why it's important for us to embrace this body of teaching about him and pursue these specific practices. We're going to look this morning at a very old text that tells us to do some old things, some familiar, traditional things. And it's good to look at it because, frankly, we live in an age where the the thought is that if it's old, it's to be suspected. If it's new, if the teaching is new, the technique is new, the method is new, then it's immediately 
better, wiser, fresher, more relevant, more exciting, more effective. There are a lot of Christian writers who in recent decades have been determined that if it's old or traditional, it automatically needs to be reformatted, redone, remade. Uh, Last Sunday after the uh, congregational meeting where we voted to uh, hire Ryan Witherells, our our worship coordinator, was walking in the hall and I passed one of the senior members of our congregation. And um, I don't want to embarrass her by identifying her too carefully, uh, but her name is Mary Heisey. And I was walking down the hall with Mary Heisey, and and, uh, I said, well, how's it going? And she said to me, she said, well, I just hope he doesn't goof up our worship services. (laughs) She said, I was going to write that on the ballot, but I didn't think it would matter. Don't goof up our worship services. Then she said to me something that is, uh, you know, Mary's a wise woman. She said, but, you know, I'm just an old crow. And if I complain too much, they'll just tell me to go back to my nest and take a nap. (laughs) Hmm. I'm sure there are old crows who would do better to go take a nap. But I'm also sure that there are spring chickens who need to slow down a little bit. The question arises, how do you know what to keep and what to get rid of? Uh, What can you keep? What must you keep? What can you let go? How do you know what is essential and and what is optional, especially when it comes to following Christ? And this is a passage that I want to read to you in verses 21 through 28 that gives at least part of an answer. It's not a comprehensive list, but it's a good place to start. This is the report of the final months of Paul's first missionary journey. And it's a summary, and it's a summary of Paul's M.O. Are you familiar with that phrase, the M.O.? Latin for modus operandi, the mode of operation, what what you normally do, how you do something is your M.O. This is Paul's M.O. And I want to look at it with you this morning in part because I want you to see how it affirms so many of the things that we do at our church. This is a, by the grace of God, what is here is part of what we do, Um, Uh, To the best of my ability, I've picked up where my predecessors in this pulpit left off, and someday I'll hand off these practices to somebody else. And and this is what we aim for. Now, let's read the text here. Acts 14, verse 21. They, that's Paul and Barnabas, preached the gospel in that city, uh, the city of Derby, and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith for the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. This is a a summary report. It tells us about Paul's MO. And amidst 
all the travel and the controversies and the suffering and the, the sermons, what was Paul trying to accomplish? And this is a passage that, uh, that highlights, I think, two things that he did, the what's of Paul's ministry. What was he trying to do? But it also tells us how, how he did it. What was he doing and how it, did he do it? That's what I want to set before you this morning. I think you'll see it clearly in the scriptures as, as we want to do what the apostles taught us to do by their example. This is our goal, too. So here's, here's, let's start with the what. What was Paul doing? He was, first of all, making disciples. He was making disciples. Disciple, I think, is the key word in this passage, isn't it? Verse 21, they want a large number of disciples. Verse 22, strengthening the disciples. And then at verse uh, 28, and they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Disciples is the key text here. It's a key text in what Jesus told us to do in Matthew 28, right? Go into all the world and uh, make disciples. That is, cultivate followers of Jesus Christ. Be involved in the work of forming people who are not followers of Jesus. Uh, invite them to follow him and, and form them into people who are increasingly like Jesus and more and more effectively represent Jesus in the world. It's some of you who are a part of the, the Sunday school class that I just finished teaching. We, we talked about what it means to be made in the image of God. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Being made in the image of God means that we're like God and we represent God in the world. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? You are like Jesus and you represent Jesus in the world. Uh, that's what a disciple is. This, uh, this calling to make disciples is an important to remember because it's easy to get lost in all the events here. What's interesting is this very mature church in Antioch that had been well taught, that had excellent apostolic teachers, it was a mature, growing, multi-ethnic, multi-generational congregation, they're, what are they? They're disciples. And all of these young churches in these cities with new believers facing significant challenges that were uh, not very well taught, not consisting of very mature believers, what are they? <laughs> They're disciples too. It's what all of us are. It's what we have in common with them. We're followers of Jesus. We're disciples too. This should shape, I think, how you think about the people who sit next to you in the pews and the people that you pass in the halls and in the aisles of, of the church. Uh, you can view them from a number of different angles. Perhaps you, you think about them from a number of different um, settings here. Maybe you see some of them and you say, I, I have no idea who you are. <laughs> that bothers some of you that you don't know everybody who's uh, walking around here um, Maybe you see other people and you think, you're just an old crow, or you're just a spring chicken. Maybe you're, you're happy uh, to be with people who are like you and who like this church. It's nice to be with people who like church. Uh, maybe, uh, this is even better yet, in, in keeping with the fact that every week we have visitors and guests with us, maybe you see other people, and this would be good to think, if that person is, is with us here, they're a, a, a covenant member. You're surrounded by covenant members of the congregation, people who are with you living in mutual accountability to God's word. That would be good. Even beyond that, though, one more step further we can go. 
taking into account again that we have guests and visitors here, you, you should think that person is my fellow follower of Jesus. He's a disciple. She's a disciple like me. We have the same hero. We are both endeavoring to be like Jesus and to represent him in the world. Uh, that person lives in a house, so I live in an apartment. That person has kids. Um, I don't have any kids. That person rides their motorcycle to church. I drive my Suburban to church. That person, though, is a disciple like me. And we come together and we sing songs to the same Jesus that we adore. And we give for his sake. And we serve to magnify him and to represent him. We are all disciples. In the last couple of weeks, I have been uh, contacting some of our outreach partners and inviting them to come visit us over the next few months. The first one who's, who's going to come uh, will be Jack Kranz. You know, outreach partners, often they bring slides, right? This is uh, the world, well, not slides, digital pictures now. Jack, Jack doesn't even bring digital pictures. Jack's not going to bring anything. But Jack will stand up here and he will tell us about the people that he's met in the course of his ministry, that, that he, he, he might tell us about some of the kids he meets who come from the poorest of the poorest sections in the city of Coatesville. And, and he'll talk to us about some of the inmates that he's met in the county jail or some of the interaction that he has with people in the nation who are high in the echelons of um, uh, the criminal justice system, the police forces around uh, the nation. He'll talk to us about all those things. And when you're sitting there and you listen to Jack say those things, and if he talks about that little girl from the poorest part of the city or uh, that man who's in, incarcerated or that man who's, who's leading a police brigade somewhere, if he talks about them as followers of Jesus Christ, you should think to yourself, disciple, just like me. person who loves Jesus and is following him, just like me. Uh, when Mark and Stacy Niles come and visit us, Lord willing, in September, they're going to bring pictures. They're going to bring pictures of the Bada Church in Madagascar. Uh, they'll bring pictures of men and women who live in huts and don't have indoor plumbing and probably only rarely ride in vehicles and plow their fields with oxen. And uh, remind yourself, when you see their pictures, disciples like me, <laughs> they're following Jesus in their huts with their cattle. You're following Jesus in your car, in your house, with your iPhone. Very different, but they're like me, disciples. This is what Paul does. He invites people to follow Jesus. Now, secondly, this passage tells us about something else Paul does. He is involved in planting churches. He plants churches. Verse 23 tells us that Paul and Barnabas visited each church. Uh, this is what happens when individuals become followers of Jesus. They're joined together in a local fellowship. The New Testament knows nothing of a follower of Jesus who is not part of a church. If you were walking down the street one day and uh, walking down the sidewalk and you, you were to come across suddenly in front of you a human nose, you would look at it with horror and you'd have two questions on your mind. One is, where does the person this nose belongs to? The second question you would have in your mind is, who cut it off and where's that person? Right? <laughs> Something is wrong. There's a nose on the sidewalk. You might look for the bloody wound. The nose, but you'd respond in a horror. This is horrible. If you if you follow if you, you meet someone who says, "Yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't really go to church," 
not really part of a church. You, you, I, I don't suggest you say this. It's probably not be real polite, but you should say, think to yourself, that's horrible. Where's the bloody wound in your life? Because you're disconnected from the body. Something is wrong with you. Uh, Paul plants churches. It's what he does. And his little commentary on the book of Acts, John Stott uh, quotes from another historian, an expert in the ministry of Paul. And and this is what this this man wrote. Nothing can alter or disguise the fact that St. Paul did leave behind him at his first visit complete churches. Indeed, in little more than 10 years, St. Paul established a church in four provinces of the ancient Roman Empire, Galatia, Macedonia, Achaia, and Asia. Before A.D. 47, there were no churches in these provinces. In A.D. 57, St. Paul could speak as if the work there was done. Paul didn't pursue anything else. He didn't form anything else. He didn't plant, he didn't found seminaries. He didn't start hospitals. He didn't start rescue missions. He didn't start merely Bible studies. He didn't start youth centers. He didn't start uh, uh, children's Bible clubs. Now, all of those things are, are good, and, and, and they have fruitful things. Uh, they produce fruitful things. But if they're not focused on the church, they have lost their apostolic roots. That's the purpose of a good Bible college, is to focus you on the church. It's the purpose of a good youth ministry, is to point those junior and senior high students to the church. Why is that? It's because it's only the church that is the body of Christ. It's only within the congregation of those who are following Jesus that, that we have the guarantee from Ephesians 4 that there are gifted people who help us all grow up into him who is our head, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why when, when Paul goes back to Antioch and he reports to the church, this is, this is so important, he, tells, he gathers the church together. Let me tell you about the churches that God has formed and how significant and wonderful it is. Because in part, the book of Acts here from, from here on out is the story of a church in Antioch that planted churches through Paul all around the Mediterranean. This is the church at Antioch's work. Churches planting churches is the sub-theme of the book of Acts from here to the end. Um, our church, there's, there's a church this morning. Uh, well, they've already met because of the time change. They're, they're done meeting for today. There's a church in Annecy, France. Uh, that didn't exist 10 years ago. Uh, but because, in part, we have supported Stephen Donna Niles and and we um, sent Bruce and Betsy Souter over there to help them with the construction project of that building. There's, there's a congregation in Annecy, France, that we had a role in planting. I hope that sometime uh, within the next 10 years, we'll be able to talk about a new church in India because we are giving and praying for the things. This passage uh, tells us how, um, this, how Paul... What he was focused on, he was focused on planting churches. Now, from the what, we're going to move on to the how. How did Paul accomplish this? There's three elements in this passage, 
that talk about Paul's work of making disciples and planting churches, how he did it. And again, I'm going to borrow from John Stott. No one's outlines are as clear as his. So he, he surfaces these three things in this passage. First, there is apostolic teaching. Apostolic teaching. Verse 21 says, Paul preached the gospel in that city. Verse 22, he strengthened the disciples and encouraged them to remain true to the faith. As Paul traveled from place to place, he was preaching the word. And then when he left, he left them with the New Testament. uh, Sorry, he left them with the Old Testament, this collection of books that was their Bible. And then he left them with the body of truth that he had taught them, the gospel. And then as time went along, Paul wrote letters to them. And the other apostles wrote letters to them that they collected together with the Old Testament. And they would read them this collection of apostolic teaching. Now we can be more specific even about what this teaching involved, can't we? In verse 22, he strengthened and encouraged them. He encouraged them specifically to remain true to the faith. Those verbs, strengthen and encourage, are actually very important in the New Testament for, for making disciples. Paul uses them a lot to talk about how teachers in the church are to, to, to um, build, equip the body. Strengthen and encourage. He sought to strengthen and encourage them because they needed to remain true to the faith. Now, why did they need this encouragement, to remain true? I think it's because... These believers consistently faced the temptation to quit. There were men and women who would gather with the other brothers and sisters, and uh, they would gather together for worship, and they would sit there and they'd say, you don't know if I'm going to continue with this. I'm not sure. We don't talk about the temptation to quit, do we, very much? It seems like it maybe maybe it seems a little bit uh, failure-oriented to even suggest that someone might be tempted to quit following Jesus. Uh, My dog and I, we still, Stella, uh, walk around town early in the morning as often as I can. And um, over over the years that I have been doing this with the dog, I see people, familiar faces over these years. I don't know any of their names. I don't know anything about them except what I can observe in the time that they... uh, pass me or I pass them. Well, there's this one woman who has been running through town for a long time, through Millersville, and when I use the word run, I really, she runs. She doesn't jog, she doesn't walk, she doesn't power walk, she runs like a pack of wolves is chasing her. She runs through town. And, and whenever I see her, whenever she passes me, I just, just, I'm, you know, slugging away here with the dog, and here comes... Wonder Woman across, right? And and she's very she always waves. And what do you do when whoosh, there she goes? <laughs> Look at her go. I I I always smile. Good morning. I'm so happy to be here. It's cold and dark. There's no place I'd rather be except here with my dog on the sidewalk with the gas fumes everywhere from people's cars going to work. There's another woman that I pass. She huffs and puffs a little bit like I do. We were walking one day, and, and uh, Stella and I were out, and, and this woman, she passes me. She goes in the opposite circle, I think, that I do. And, and so I had been everywhere where she was going to go. And she stopped me as we were walking, and she said, Is the sidewalk up there still icy? I said, Yeah, they didn't shovel very well. It's pretty slick. She looked at me, and she said, Well, I'm going home then. 
I thought to myself, you're the type of person I want to share the sidewalk with. Right? This is sounding good. Sometimes we come to church convinced, uh, working really hard to convince one another that we just run all the time. That we are the superheroes of Christianity. And we see one another on Sunday and we say, good morning. So happy to be here. There's no place I'd rather be. The truth of the matter is, sometimes you come on Sunday mornings and you say, oh, I'm going home. Remember what these people in this book had seen here in these cities. They had seen Paul, from whom they heard this message, beaten and opposed and plotted against. And he gave him a reminder that must not have been good news, but they should have known this. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Now, we, we should be clear about what he's talking about here when he says to enter the kingdom of God. He's not talking there with that phrase in this context about becoming a Christian. You don't become a Christian by going through many hardships. Actually, there is a hardship that was involved in you becoming a Christian, but the wonderful message of the gospel is that it is not hardship borne by you, but hardship borne by the Savior. The affliction that's taken up by, by Christ. In 2 Corinthians, Paul puts the affliction that he bore in financial terms. Though he, Paul says, was rich, Jesus, for your sake he became poor. He left his home with his father in heaven and was born as a baby into the backwoods of the empire. And in that precarious position, he did everything that his father had asked him to do. Perfectly. I wonder how often I, I do it. I wonder how often you find yourself using circumstances as to rationalize your own disobedience of the Father. If I just had more money, if I just had more energy, if I just had more time, if I just had more opportunities, I'm just poor in all of these things, and I just can't obey. And yet the Lord Jesus did. He was obedient, even Philippians 2, to the point of death. Even Philippians 2, to the point of death on a cross. Dying on the cross to pay the penalty we owed because of our sin. You become a Christian by turning to him and trusting in him. He bore all of the hardship of the wrath of God for us. He became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. So there is a hardship involved in entering, becoming a believer, but it's Jesus' hardship, not yours. Now, notice here, just one, one more point about this, verse 27. When, when Paul goes back to Antioch, he tells them, he reported all that God had done through them and how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Thomas Goodwin was a Puritan pastor, and he said, once that in preaching, we knock on the doors of the hearts of men and women, and the Holy Spirit comes with a key and unlocks the door. What Paul is testifying to here in Acts 14. It's how you become a Christian. When Paul uses the term, though, in verse 22, to enter the kingdom of God, he's not talking about becoming a Christian. He's talking about the final consummation and eternity. This is what happens to those who are followers of Jesus. The road is hard and it's long. Following Jesus is often costly. 
There are men and women who are here this morning and they're discouraged because they have been praying for something over and over and over and over again and God hasn't answered and they want to quit. I wonder how you could encourage them this morning after the service to keep. Don't wave and smile. I wonder how you can encourage someone like that. Or there's somebody who is uh, discouraged this morning because they don't seem to be making any progress in their relationship with Christ. Or they're lonely. Or uh, the Bible, it just doesn't seem to be singing to them like it has before. Or life's just been hard. Remind one another. Remind one another tonight in your growth group that it is necessary for us to enter the kingdom of God through much affliction and say to them, oh, don't quit. Remain true to the faith. Follow Christ with me together. Let's do it together. I'll help you. I'll carry you as best I can. That's the apostolic teaching. That's what he taught them. Now, second, the second how in this passage is this, church leadership, church leadership. It's interesting. Verse 23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church. Plural elders in each singular church. In each church, there was a group of men, a team of men appointed to lead. Here's how they they come about. They're appointed. Later, Paul is going to give the church's instructions for how they can select their own elders. And as part of his ongoing pastoral care for these new believers, he provides them with on-site, personal, pastoral leadership. Men who are going to devote themselves to teaching the Word of God and to prayer. God deigns to speak His Word through human voices. We sing a hymn sometimes by Charles Wesley, uh, Arise, My Soul, Arise. Um, One of the verses goes, My God is reconciled, His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for His child I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. Uh, My God is reconciled, His pardoning voice I hear. Where did Charles Wesley hear the pardoning voice of God. He heard it sitting in the pew, if nowhere else, when a preacher would stand and say, oh, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Charles Wesley said, that is the pardoning voice of God that I hear. Some have have read this question and they ask good questions about these elders. Here's a good question they ask. How in the world, in these churches that are only a few months old, or perhaps just a, a year old, a year and a half maybe, able to produce elders? Are they really mature enough to be elders? Paul later counseled, didn't he say to Timothy, don't appoint a novice, a new believer, to the position of elder in the church. Don't do that. Well, what's going on here? The standards for being an elder in the Bible are in black and white, but I think in certain, a certain sense they are relative. Um, in a church that's full of mature Christians who've been well taught, who've followed Christ for a long time, there's going to be a pretty deep bench of quality men who can serve as elders. But in newer churches, 
the, the position has to be filled. And how is it filled? Perhaps by these men who are making evident progress as followers of Christ. I suppose there are men who are appointed to be elders in Lystra and Iconium and Antioch that you wouldn't appoint to be elders in the other Antioch because um, they still need to grow in, in that context. Regardless, though, here's Paul's M.O. He is appointing elders, churches led by elders. This is how he's going to accomplish his task of making disciples and planting churches. Uh, this is why in our church we value the office of eldership so much. It's as old as the New Testament itself, and so are some of our elders. Let's move on. Here we go. So, Now the last how in, I'm just kidding. The last how in this passage has to do with the grace of God, specifically reliance on the grace of God, reliance on the grace of God. There's an element of faith here, isn't there? He, he preaches the word to them. He appoints elders. He commends them to the grace of God. This is God's work, and he has trusted, he, Paul is trusting God to oversee it. Verse 23, how does he do it? He entrusts them with prayer and fasting. He commits them to the Lord. There's a reminder that that's even how Paul went out. Verse 26, in the city of Antioch in Syria, that's where they had been committed to the grace of God. He's leaving. What's going to happen? It's out of his control. It's out of Paul's control, but it's inside God's control. What's going to happen to the Grace Baptist Church of Millersville in 50 years? It's going to be a faithful congregation. It's in God's control. We entrust it into his care. This is something like what you do when, uh, isn't it, when you when you send your college student off to her first year of school and you trust them to the grace of God? Or um, when you, your son moves out of your house and enters his married life, trust him to the grace of God? Or when we send missionaries overseas with prayer and fasting, we entrust them to the Lord? Stephen Don and Niles, in their most uh, recent prayer letter, mentioned some of the things that they need. Their fledgling congregation that they're planting in a city called Aix-les-Bains in France. They need a, a new building, a, a worship space for them to meet. They, they asked us to pray. They're going to come back to the States for a few months to visit some of their churches. So they asked for safety and energy. And then lastly, though, they said, pray for us that we would keep our focus on Jesus and others. So that's a good request. It's a request about reliance on the grace of God. It's interesting. The requests in the missionary letters that we get, the ones that are the most helpful are the ones that all of them could write. Not the unique things that are most important. It's the one that all of us could write. Woe unto us if we think that we just, if we just had the right systems or the right people, we could safeguard against all problems and we wouldn't need the grace of God. Uh, this week I learned about, uh, uh, about a, a map system I'd never heard of before called Portland Maps. Have you ever heard of Portland Maps? Portland Maps were made during the 14 and 1500s largely, and most of the maps are of the Mediterranean Sea. And what is surprising about this particular form of map, these Portland Maps, is that they are amazingly accurate. Most of the time when we see maps made in the 14 and 1500s, you look at them and you think to yourself, what third grader drew this, right? 
but not the Portland maps. In fact, they were made with such accuracy that even today you could take a ship and use a Portland map to sail safely around the Mediterranean. Now, how do they do it? There's a researcher at the Library of Congress who spent the last several years trying to figure out uh, how, without advanced technology, without being able to fly above the area or without, obviously, GPS, how they could make these maps that are so incredibly accurate. It's, it's an amazing feat of mathematics. It's amazing to us that something so old could be so useful. And here we have the book of Acts. It's very old. But we trust this book. It's reliable because, not math, that we don't understand. It's reliable because it comes from the Holy Spirit itself. It's the work of the apostles. This is Paul's M.O. And if we're wise, it will be our M.O. too. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we come before you this morning, and I am grateful to you for the opportunity to um, speak to my brothers and sisters from this passage about things that, that by your grace we are attempting to cultivate in our congregation, our elders. We have elders, and we have um, men and women in our church who, who take these things, all these things that we've read very seriously. Lord, I ask that according to your kindness, you would sharpen us, though, in them. That our progress as a congregation would be, would be more and more evident. That um, we would exalt in them more and more. And that you would give us wisdom about letting go of the things that aren't essential so that we can pursue these with greater vigor and joy and energy. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we are your body and you are our head. We would follow you faithfully according to your grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things together. Amen.